this year, Claire and Linda Sanchez and I have been meeting monthly with our coming of age youth on Sunday afternoons. We've been engaging big theological questions with these high schoolers. And it is wonderful to get to do this with them. Questions about good and evil, about prayer and spiritual practices, about our faith tradition, about God, among other things. And it matters because it matters what we think and how we see and understand things. What about you? Do you think people are generally good at heart or not? What about the nature of God? What do you think about that? Is God angry and judgmental or at the other end of the spectrum, as one of our hymns puts it, caring and forgiving till we're reconciled? When you hear that word, God, what image or images come to mind? It matters because how we imagine things does shape how we live in the world. Doing theology is simply engaging with these questions, with these images, through our own hearts and minds, and in conversation and in connection with others. One of my teachers, Carter Hayward, said, the only theology worth doing is that which inspires and transforms lives, that which empowers us to participate in creating, liberating, and blessing the world. If you grew up in the Christian tradition, as many of us did, what were the images you grew up with? I'm thinking particularly about images of Jesus. Were they ones like we have here, placed here at the end of the 19th century by the Universalists? I look at this image, sometimes I come in here when it's quiet during the week and sit here, not as often as I should, but I look at that image and it feels invitational to me. And these words of Jesus come to mind, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But maybe you grew up with a different image for Jesus. Perhaps Jesus on the cross, bloody and suffering, gaunt, wearing a crown of thorns, despised and rejected, as the aria from Handel's Messiah puts it, quoting the prophet Isaiah, by the way. And if so, what does that image tell you about religion and about life? And what if I told you that those bloody images of Jesus are a relatively new phenomenon? 
that for almost a thousand years, there were no images of Jesus dead on the cross. That when Christians gathered for worship, they placed images before them of Jesus in a garden, or teaching, or healing, or as the good shepherd. Jesus alive, not dead. This is what two feminist Bible scholars, Rebecca Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock, discovered. And they wrote this really big book about it. Listen to the opening sentences of this book called Saving Paradise, How Christianity Traded Love for This World for Crucifixion and Empire. They write, it took Jesus a thousand years to die. Images of his corpse did not appear in churches until the 10th century. Why? This question set us off on a five-year pilgrimage that led to this book. And what they found as they did research and as they traveled around the Mediterranean were all these forgotten, often forgotten, but more life-affirming images, earlier images of Jesus being baptized in the River Jordan, teaching, feeding, healing. They visited churches with these beautiful images of pastoral scenes, images of paradise here on earth. One of these, which is a huge mosaic in Ravenna, Italy, it's in the thing that's called the apse, which is the big curved thing above the altar. It's over 40 feet across. They put it, a picture of it, on the cover of their book because of how, they say, it places beauty at the heart of the cosmos. It shows sheep and trees and green grass and saints, a garden of order and delight. And above this, surrounded by a heaven full of stars, there is this golden sparkling cross with a teeny, tiny, face of Jesus right at the center. There's no crucifix, no thorns, no blood, rather a celebration of goodness and beauty and possibility. I used a photo of that mosaic for our Facebook post this week that I found on the website of the Orthodox Arts Journal. And on that page, it describes this scene as a vision of paradise. And it says, paradise is our original home where we were intended to meet and commune with God. It is a place of intimacy, a place to dwell and enjoy. People visit mountaintops, this passage said, but they do not stay there. A mountaintop is a place of ecstasy from which we eventually have to descend. Mountains are not a place to remain, but a garden can be. We just sang, earth was given as a garden. The second verse echoes the theme of this book. It's called to recover these more life-affirming images for what saves us. Show to us again the garden where all life flows fresh and free. Gently guide your sons and daughters into full maturity. Teach us how to trust each other, 
how to use for good our power, how, how to touch the earth with reverence. Then once more will Eden flower. I've told you before about the psychologist Miriam Greenspan and her book called Healing Through the Dark Emotions about the power and the liberation that comes from moving through your hardest experiences, not denying them or running away from them, but going through the trials of life and not getting stuck there. And in the fullness of time, finding yourself healed and made whole. Miriam Greenspan knows about this firsthand. Her son Aaron was born with a brain injury and never left Boston Children's Hospital. In that book, she writes about the day that they buried him. She writes, at the cemetery, we lowered his small casket into the ground and took turns shoveling earth over it as is the custom in Jewish burials. We sang to Aaron the songs we'd made up for him while he was alive and that we recorded for him to hear when we weren't with him. Then softly, as though spoken in my ear, I heard these words. You are looking in the wrong place. My attention turned then from the casket in the ground to the cloudless blue sky, and I saw there what I can only describe as a magnificent radiance. The light of Aaron's blue eyes magnified and shining through the heavens. The communication was clearer than speech. It was Aaron reassuring me. He was saying, don't worry about me. I am all right. I was flooded with peace and remembered that phrase, the peace that passes understanding. I was awash in the pure joy of Aaron's presence in the most unlikely place where my child's body was laid to rest. I discovered the invincibility of spirit. Three weeks from today is Easter. We will hear the gospel passage about the women who come to the tomb and find it empty And then they're asked by a stranger there, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, you are looking in the wrong place. This is what Rebecca Parker and Rita Brock are asking the church today. Why have you taken the story of Jesus, the radical rabbi and teacher and healer and liberator, and wrapped it up in images that glorify death and suffering? Why have you focused more on how Jesus died than on how he lived? Why do we celebrate torture and glorify suffering with passion play reenactments and movies like Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Why? In their research, these two scholars and theologians believe that it was the times of the medieval period, times that brought plagues and wars and holy wars and inquisitions to Europe, a time of such widespread suffering that it seemed to many the world was coming to an end. 
and that the theology and the ritual and the art of that time became reflected in the church. The church started to create art that reflected the pain and suffering outside its doors. And we've had it with us ever since. This idea that what is earthy is sinful and bad, that what is godly is pure and aloof, that paradise is something that is up there somewhere, that paradise only comes after a life of divinely ordained suffering. And you know, it doesn't come to everybody, just saying. But this is not the good news that Jesus shared in his ministry, nor what we affirm as universalists. Jesus said, I come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He meant in the here and now. He meant people being fed and healed and freed from what was keeping them living full and whole and holy lives. Some years at this time, not only do I mourn what sometimes happens in the March Madness basketball games, (laughs) but I find myself resisting the weeks, the time that leads up to Easter. I think it's because of the ways that Jesus' suffering has been glorified and also the claims that some Christians make that theirs is the only way. But the other day on the way to church, trying to get more into this, I started listening to the parts of Handel's Messiah that are about this season, this time of darkness and light, of death and life. And the aria came on, if God be for us, who can be against us? Those words from Paul's letter to the Romans express the faith that death is not the end of the story, that in the end, love wins. The day before, I had met with several of Faye Reinhold's children to plan the memorial service for their mom, and one of them had requested this very reading because of its assertion that nothing can separate us from the love of God. We just heard Wendell Berry writing about his springtime ritual of bearing old papers he no longer needs that have outlived their use. And I ask you, what do we need to discard as individuals and as religious traditions so that we might have new life? What if we let go of those violent images that have caused too many people to stay stuck in suffering and in brokenness and offered instead images of healing, restoration, and new life? What if we practiced seeing paradise right here? How might that change things? What if we embraced a confession like Wendell Berry's to the sky To the wind, then, and to the faithful trees, I confess my sins, that I have not been happy enough considering my good luck, have listened to too much noise, have been inattentive to wonders, 
have lusted after praise. Yes, it's true that to be human is to suffer and eventually to die. But you know that's not the whole story. We are here to live and love and be of use, to be open and attentive, to wonder, to see that paradise is possible right here, to be happy and mindful of our blessings. The invitation, as always, is to do our own work, to pay attention to these lives that we have been given, to what haunts us and holds us back, and also to what heals us, to work on our own liberation and help others to do the same, to be part of creating paradise right where we are so that we can freely and gladly lift our voices and sing, I'm on my way to the freedom land. I'm on my way, great God, I'm on my way. Amen.